0: And I'm Alexander Wales.
1: And this is episode 11, Story Structure, part 1. You mentioned a few times that you use a very specific modeling for your stories. Yeah. So why don't you tell us about that?
0: Yeah. Basically, in fiction, you have your series of, of scenes or your your series of events that make up your plot. And you go through those, you know, in usually in chronological order. Um, story circles are sort of... It starts with uh, Joseph Campbell did his Hero of a Thousand Faces, and it was sort of a, uh, a breaking apart of myths from, from many different cultures and things like that. We've talked about this before. Um, mm-hmm.
1: It was a Hero's Journey, right?
0: Yeah, you have the Hero's Journey, and the hero like leaves his homeland, and he has this road of trials, and he's got this mentor figure, and then he has a... Um, he journeys to the underworld. He has this death and rebirth and then he returns home a conquering hero or whatever. So that's Joseph Campbell's descriptivist approach to fiction. And, and he was basically saying, like, look at all, all these myths from all these different places that share all these core details with each other that this is. And Dan Harmon, who's a screenwriter for television, Rick and Morty and community are his two big ones. And
1: he does a, I um, just, I just, my friend just recently showed me, he does a live kind of uh,
0: tabletop RPGs, doesn't he? Yep. And he does uh, Harmon Town is his podcast about a whole bunch of different stuff. They just talk about stuff, right? But he sort of sets forth this prescriptivist approach to storytelling, which sort of breaks down Campbell's monomyth of like all the things that happen to heroes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And Harmon sort of builds this story circle of like plot events like how how the plot is shaped in most stories if you want to do a story that's that's done well basically or, or that harman says it sort of hooks into the lizard brain part of you like the part of the human brain that's really good at storytelling i don't think there's that much scientific backing there there's some i mean there's clearly some anthropological backing if you buy into Campbell's whole thing, I mean, there's there's some critiques of Hero of a Thousand Faces, but the fact that so many cultures have these stories with these shared elements in them and this t- sort of shared narrative path to them. To Campbell, that indicated that there was something very elemental about it. And to Harmon, that sort of indicates that, okay, that that's how the human brain wants stories to be, for them to be compelling, right? Mm-hmm. That, that if you look at stories they're, they're, they're going to follow this natural shape if you're trying to hook into the human brain, if you're trying to manipulate the human brain to...
1: Press the same emotional buttons.
0: Yeah, it's sort of the, you know, we, we talked about this in our tropes episode, there, there's some things that, just because of the way that people like to read stories, they're, they're always going to come out. And Dan Harmon's story story circle method, it sort of... Taps into that. Yeah, is, is aimed directly at that, rather than sort of coming across it by coincidence. So imagine that you have this clock face that has eight numbers on it, right? So you start at the top, is one, you establish character, two, that character has a need, three, that character goes somewhere, four, they search for something, Uh, five, they find it, six, they take it, seven, they return, and eight, they have changed. So those are that's that's one through eight. You need go from search, find, take, return, change, and that's that's the story circle. You can break those down a lot, but very many stories will follow that structure. I mean, obviously, you're always going to establish your, your character at the, at the beginning. So like Spider-Man, right? You know, they've they've rebooted the franchise however many times? Uh, so, so you get the same Spider-Man story a lot, but you establish Peter Parker. And then you know he's a geek or whatever. He has this need because he's like a, a geek, and he gets beat up in school a lot or whatever. And the go moment for him is usually Uncle Ben's death, mm-hmm. right? And then the the search is sort of him becoming hero, and then he discovers himself, and there there's the transformative moment in there, right? And then he eventually he conquers the bad guy at some point and and comes into himself as a hero right. and, and sort of the which, movie yeah ends with him as a, a superhero having sort of developed as a character right right
1: which which starts as a kind of like in a lot of stories like this you've got a loss that kicks them off into starting their journey. And that can look different for different people. Like Spider Man obviously already has his uniform and, and his name once the story is maybe like halfway through, but it's not till the end of it where he's beaten his first supervillain and made a sacrifice on his own part that he decides this is something that I'm going to commit myself to because I need to. Like it's not just a it's not just about his uncle anymore. It's not just about um finding, you know, something to do with his powers. He knows what he wants to do with his powers now.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, for all the flaws that it had as a movie, the um, Man of Steel mm-hmm. has Superman not be Superman until the end of the movie. It's sort of he's like evolved. He's he's done some superheroic stuff, and right. put in a Costume, and he's still not Superman until the very end of the movie.
1: Right. I actually, I really, I mean, we can talk about that movie to to great extent at some point. But one of the things that really bothered me about it was that he's first introduces himself as Superman near the end of the movie. Like, Superman only exists as a character at the end of the movie, like you said. But his point of deciding I need to be Superman was the same point of everyone suddenly needing him to be Superman. Yeah. Which kind of, to me, didn't feel as great as it would have been if, if he had been Superman originally and then had a reason to afterward where everyone was like... was Zod shows up and the aliens are like, you know, give us Kal-El, this alien amongst you, whatever it was, and no one knew who the fuck he was yeah and, and so like that moment would have been so much better if it forced a decision on the part of humanity, like do we give up this person who's been going around saving people, or do we just you know or do we not give up our our resident hero to these aliens that are threatening us? yeah and instead, like Superman starts fighting them, and everyones like has no idea who he is or, or why he's stopping them who he, like the, the military shoots at him even because they don't even know who, like you know who, who the good guys and who the bad guys are in the situation. But yeah, it still follows the same structure idea of him realizing that this is what he what he needs to do.
0: Yeah, and monomyth is very very common in superhero stories. Harmon's story circle method is is not designed explicitly for television for like sitcoms, which he, like
1: have an ongoing.
0: Yeah, but it's sort of it it applies to to many different types of stories, right? right? Like that romantic comedies fall into this pattern very often you, you establish your character you establish their need and then they sort of kick things off with the meet cute and then there's this searching process and this like finding love and then taking love and and then sort of returning to their life of normalcy mm-hmm. having changed right um so so you it, it extends beyond the classic monomyth and into all sorts of different um different things uh when they're writing episodes of community they would just break down each episode like that mm-hmm. right like what what is the need that we're establishing how do you know? can,
1: how do they confront it what changes yeah. by the end of it yeah right and usually either someone either someone's circumstance will change by the end of a story or the circumstance is the same one that they started in but they themselves have changed
0: yeah and and that's that's one of Pixar's rules of storytelling is that you you establish your character and you immediately establish their need, mm-hmm. right? That's good storytelling in general that you don't want to, you don't want to have a character who has no needs or desires, right. who's just sort of getting pulled along by the plot. That, that can be a real problem. But anyway, back to the story circle, um, it's sort of divided into halves. You have the overworld, which is like the normal world, the mundane world, and then you have the underworld, which is the the sort of magical world Mm -hmm. or the matrix is a very is a good example because you start the
1: the metaphors are very real
0: yeah and it in monomythic fashion sort of there he you know he has all these experiences in the overworld which is the matrix Mm -hmm. and then he sort of passes through this mirror um which is sort of a metaphorical mirror as well and then gets ejected out into the real world and that's sort of the the sort of flow that happens. And then he like has this death and rebirth thing like right at the end of the movie right. um, and so, sort of returns having changed. Right. He's back in control of himself. So uh, one of the things that you can do with story circles, this is and I, I use this the story circle structure for most of the things I write now. I don't always structure what I write. But I, I tend to run into problems when I when I don't. But so for like Glim Warden, there is a story circle set for each of our four primary characters, um, and they each have a defined sort of underworld that they're going through that are like distinct from each other, and they each have sort of a central idea that that the circle is traveling around. So like if you were doing a drama or something you might decide that your central idea was something like trust right mm-hmm. and the the need of the character is not necessarily trust. it can be spontaneity or you know um, fulfillment or whatever but as you sort of go through you sort of pivot around that concept of trust as you go into the overworld and the underworld and so trust is a central theme. Your, your underworld can be mistrust, right? If it's about a relationship between two people, like your, your primary story is about a relationship between two people, you, at, when you get to that, you, you define the need. And then the go part is you you break the trust. Mm-hmm. And your underworld is sort of that being in a relationship with someone who you can no longer trust, whether it's a mentor or a, a lover or whatever. Right. And then as you come out, there's a rebuilding of trust or exiting the relationship or, or something like that to sort of complete this cycle. Dan Harmon uses he's uh, he his bear. So you could circle your story around bears. Right. And and like the story would start with a happy bear and then the underworld would be like sad bears. Mm-hmm. And then when you come out, the bear is happy again. Or there are happy bears or something, right? Um, but it's it's very helpful to sort of think about what your story is about at its core and how you're gonna how you're gonna explore that theme by going through this sort of circular motion.
1: Right. So these are these are these are similar ideas to exploring different types of conflict, right?
0: Yeah. Um, because
1: the central theme of a story usually also relates to its con- conflict. When I was writing Pokemon, the planning out Pokemon. I have I have the three different conflict three different conflicts in mind with the three major characters. Um, you know, Leaf is a man versus society. Blue is a man versus man, and Red is a man versus nature. Kind of arc, and all three of them have their own you know struggles and and flaws to get over and everything. But I don't have a, really an individual one for all three of them. They all kind of because they're traveling together. Right. They all They all fight, kind of circle around the same one, which is generally speaking, one about how to do better than other people in the same circumstances. Because they all want to excel. They all want to do do accomplish things that other people can't do or or haven't been able to do. Yeah. And so like that that theme of of uniqueness and excelling and optimizing kind of runs through all three of their of their stories and learning how to do that is, is part of their challenges. And when I structure chapters and like story arcs within it, I kind of use that not the clock face because i didn't know about it when i started writing it i use the idea of like what part on their of their journey are they in still and how can i start seeding the parts of the next the next part of the journey into it one of my readers, Inferno of Ulpics, made a really insightful review of the way The Origin of Species is structured and the basics of it is that it's written like an anime, which may not be surprising given the source material. To explain that, first it's worth kind of going over the structure of TV shows. Generally there are two kinds, right? There are dramas and there are comedies. Right. Dramas follow a plot, whether a season or a series long, with one episode starting where the last one ended. Comedies are basically a collection of short stories where the premise and characters all stay the same from one episode to the next. And these labels aren't perfect because because some dramas like Law & Order do follow the second structure, though pretty much no western comedies do. Western cartoons have traditionally always been structured as comedies. Whether it was the classics like Looney Tunes, or the shows of my childhood like Dexter's Lab, or the more modern ones like SpongeBob, there's no overarching narrative being told. In some shows there might be turning points, episodes once in a while where something changes, like a character dying, or someone changing their job, but between those story nodes, they were designed to be watched without having to worry about order. You see this in sitcoms like Friends, you see this in cartoons like The Simpsons, or South Park, like characters don't generally talk about things that happened in previous episodes, and they don't generally experience long-term permanent change or growth. Japanese anime, on the other hand, have primarily always been dramas. There's a story being told, the setting often shifts, the characters change and grow from one plot point to the next. That's one of the reasons they became so popular in the United States, because kids were so used to the comedies that watching anime allowed them to experience drama shows that they cared about for the first time. Now a lot of Western cartoons have the drama structure. But a lot of cartoons, whether Western or Japanese, blend the two types of shows. There's an overarching story being told, and characters change and grow, but as long as you don't miss too many episodes in a row, a lot of them more or less are interchangeable. Each episode is basically a snapshot of an ongoing journey, but most individual episodes don't have any strong continuity between them. I only ever watched the first couple seasons of Pokemon, but that's the kind of show it was. Ashton's friends on an adventure, and they're moving from one place to the next, making new friends and learning new things as they go. Unfortunately, the anime's story and characters are pretty low quality, all things considered, but the style of the show is important because thematically, it shows that the series isn't primarily about the plot of characters. It's about exploring the world of Pokemon. To compare them to books, it's an encyclopedia with a protagonist, not a novel. And that's the point that Inferno Vulpix really showed in their review. And I think I think that's why why there's a bit of a divide among my readers, some of who can't wait for the next plot point in Origin of Species to continue, while others say, you know, take your time, keep fleshing out the world, they enjoy the world building and and exploration so much. What I've been trying to do is adapt that episodic structure of protagonists exploring the world and string it together with a plot that moves forward one chapter to the next. So for almost every chapter, besides trying to present a new self-contained conflict in each, I try to give a resolution to what occurred in the previous one, like an aftermath of, of showing how it still has effects going forward, and then I set up a new conflict that will occur in one of the following chapters. I don't know we succeed as well as I'd like to, but this way the story is always moving forward from one chapter to the next, instead of having a handful of filler chapters to learn about some new Pokemon or aspect of the world the way the anime has.
0: Right, and there's I think there's a good point to be made about story structure being fractal, mm-hmm. right? Because you you want your... I mean, if you were doing a television show, you would want the entire series to sort of follow its own arc right right if you're doing story circles and there there are other structures we'll talk about but if you're doing story circles you would want the entire series to follow its sort of own story circle but then you want each season to follow its own story circle that sort of comes back to the same place at the beginning and then you want each episode to to also sort of complete its its circle and still move things forward
1: one of the things that a lot of TV shows have been doing, too, is they'll have a season-wide story, like you said, and then every episode has its own individual plot. Right. And they'll split the time in each episode between the, the protagonist trying to solve the episode's plot and then trying to solve the season-wide plot at the same time. And Veronica Mars did this, Burn Notice did this, um, White Collar did this. There's, I'm sure tons of shows that I haven't seen do it, too. And I've always found... In my experience, I've always found that the overarching stories for the seasons tend not to be as good or engaging for me as the episode to episode ones. Yeah. And I don't know if that's because the writers drop the ball. I mean, in Veronica Mars, I know why, because the the resolutions for them always sucked. Um, but the, I don't know if it's, if it's harder for TV shows to, to write a season-wide story where they don't, where they have to spread out all the information over different episodes or not. Um, but a show like The Wire will just have, every episode is just part of the wider story.
0: Yeah. And I, I've often found when they do the, um when they mix the season plot and the episode plot and they're two very distinct things, a lot of time for me it can just be really transparent. Right. When, the, if if the, the, the A plot and the B plot are not linked together tight enough. Because yeah. It's like, oh, we have to make some incremental progress on the overarching plot, but... We we you know our episode plot is not tied in tightly enough to it.
1: Right, and that can that can work in some circumstances. Um, I remember there was a few episodes of Burners. I, I watched maybe like the first three seasons. I don't remember how far I got into it before I stopped. But uh, there were a few episodes where Michael, the main character, is an ex spy, and he's trying to figure out who burned him, who um what what yeah. what what got him kicked out of the uh, spy agency he was part of, and. He's got this priority, and at the same time, he's trying to help people in the community, people around him, in their day-to-day lives. And sometimes he gets paid for it. Oftentimes, he'll get paid for it. It's like how he makes money in the meantime. But at the same time, also, it's a, it's some, it's often a moral compulsion to help people, um, despite originally being resistant to that kind of thing. And it's the the best ways that they mix is when he needs to do something for his for his find out what who burned me plot, but he can't turn away from the people that need him in the episode plot yeah. uh, and you see that conflict come up that's like the best way i i, I, I see it happen on on TV shows sometimes things like that but the worst way is again in burners sometimes they'll be literally like michael is off doing his thing with his burn stuff and his friends fiona and, and um sam x are are taking care of the episode plot not that not that that's not fun to watch them do their thing and want fun to watch him do his thing. But at that point, the schism between the two just makes it, it doesn't enhance it as well.
0: Yeah. I personally prefer to have each, cause I mean, we both do serial works, mm-hmm. right? I, I personally prefer for a single chapter to have one, possibly two plot points that it sort of resolves, right? You, 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 Start with a need, which like maybe there's a battle or something that just is one chapter. You resolve that battle and then things are progressed forward by that. Or, um, within a scene, like your, your scene establishes a very small need and then that need gets fulfilled or like a complication is added, but you've sort of come around through it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not really. I, I do stor- story structure for larger things, but I don't hew that closely to it for like on the scene level, even necessarily on the chapter level because I, <laughs> I find it very difficult to write that way.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say I, I don't personally I feel like I'm very bad at that. I don't know I don't know what ratio of chapters I would call, I would say are, are self-contained enough versus just kind of moving the plot um, chapters. I mean moving the moving the characters along chapters. Um, and what I've started doing is I would write like a line or two to explain what happens in the chapter when I, when I post it somewhere, you know, just to have a little, like, this is what this chapter is about. And what I've started doing is, is writing those, seems simple when I say it now, but I just never did it before. I was, I would, I would write that first, just like, yeah. even though I have an idea of what the chapter is about in my head, I would, I write that first now so that I have a better idea of, is there something concrete in this chapter that's being, Addressed and resolved or not, and it helps to it helps to have that being able to sum that up in a in a line or two, opposed yeah. to kind of working your way through it. And it also comes up in, in chapter titles. My chapter titles usually don't get written until the chapter is either almost done or or compl- finished. And usually, what happens is, uh, especially early on, I would have some element of rationality or you know psychology or something being included in the chapter. And it would kind of echo in, in different ways. Like it would be, there would be an explicit function and a implicit reference and, and some kind of really buried deep reference that is probably not going to become understood until later in the story. Uh, and they kind of would, more often than not, I would be surprised to find that they all work very well together around that one central idea. And I would, you know, title the chapter it and giggle to myself. Um, and the, sometimes that's hard to do though. And I struggle with the chapter titles that way. So again, I've started to, even if it's not the title I stick with by the end of it, I try to at least come up with the chapter title idea, an idea for a chapter title first, just so I can, um, better ground my thinking in, like, what's, what, what's being resolved this chapter? And hopefully yeah. have less wandering around.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to talk briefly about some other story structures, some that I've used, some, some that. Well, no, I think I've used all these. Um, So Snowflake is a... Basically, you take advantage of that fractal nature of stories. And you just write in a single sentence what your story is about. And then you write... You sort of break that out into three different sentences. You write three sentences that each describe the beginning, middle, and end of your story. And then you take each of the sentences and sort of break out like... Okay, what what three sentences describe my, the events that happen in the beginning of the story. And as soon as you start having run on sentences, then you, you just have to back it up. And that sort of keeps you grounded. If you know, going in like, okay, I am starting, you know, the arc two or book two or whatever. And it's about this dragon kidnapping a girl. Right. right. And then you can always keep that in mind. And, and that's sort of what you do is right. Is, you know, Okay, this is what it's about. Um, Snowflake is—I I don't know—I've used it before. It's—it's um, it's helpful, but it doesn't account that well for drift,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Like you get to the—you know—you get thirty thousand words in, and your Sublime. story isn't. Yeah, your story isn't always about the same thing. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. I was gonna say this is this is something that I've seen recommended a few times for people who don't know what how to start a story. And are struggling with that, and that's—it's a really great way to get them to just put words on paper, right? What's the story about? How does it start? What's the middle? What's the end? How's the start resolve? How's the middle resolve? How's the end resolve? Until before they know it, they're writing a story just in a less and less um, broad way into a more and more specific uh, scene, scene by scene way, which is great. Um, But uh, like you said, like once you start writing stories. Uh, Stephen King mentioned this a number of times and I always found it really applies to my writing too, um, is that once the characters are in your head talking and once you're writing, you're you're working your way through a story, things tend to shift and um, new plot points that you didn't realize were important or or engaging suddenly take your attention or characters end up not acting the way you thought they would.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I tried writing a novel like Stephen King once. Mm -hmm. Um, This was National Novel Writing Month 2010, I think. And it was about these... uh, this world where time travel is very common and like takes place in the the real world. Um I mean the science fiction version of the real world. Right, right. But um so Stephen King's ha described this cliffhanger method. You just write you write a chapter and you end it on a cliffhanger, and then you move to a different viewpoint and you write a chapter and you end it on a cliffhanger, <laughs> and then once you have enough viewpoint characters, you just circle back and resolve that first cliffhanger. And that keeps people really engaged, keeps them reading because they want to know what happens next. The problem, and this is how he wrote The Stand. Mm -hmm. And the problem comes when you need to start weaving these characters together um, and then have a resolution. Right. And Stephen King's uh, pretty bad at (laughs) at the resolution part. Not not all the time, but quite often. Yeah. Um, and that was that was definitely my problem. I got to like fifty thousand words or something like that, um, for National Novel Writing Month, and then I was like, wow, this can never be turned into a actual book because, like, how how these things aren't you know.
1: I I just a few days ago actually I got into a conversation on our writing about pretentiousness in in stories, and part of my post there included a little side note about Stephen King. And this is exactly what I what I mentioned was that he has his probably his biggest failing as a writer. And I love Stephen King endlessly. His endings are usually not as satisfying as his beginnings and middles.
0: Yeah, and, and this, this is part of the problem is mm-hmm. that you yep. if if you write stories like that without you know without thinking them through ahead of time or having this established structure, it's really easy to write using the cliffhanger method. I found you can just pour out words. And then eventually you come back to a viewpoint character and you're like, oh sure, I I can resolve that and then put up another cliffhanger after the end of you know five thousand words or whatever. Um, but the, how you know the, you you need to have some structure beyond that.
1: Right. But I it's... I did
0: try using that as a method. I've actually done it twice now and
1: yeah, it's 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 also probably a method that requires a lot of um end game discipline in terms of of figuring out like once you have all this great material to work with and you're trying to figure out an ending it end loads the the work of figuring out how to how to wrap it up well
0: yeah it's a method for people who really like revising which i right
1: yeah and i mean stephen king is a prolific motherfucker yeah and he i'm sure he just has so many story ideas that like he doesn't need to to focus on one enough to resolve it 200% 200% satisfaction. He's already got another story that he's excited about to start writing. So, you know, works really well for Stephen King might not work as well for people like myself who have maybe one great story idea, if that, um, and that's being generous to myself
0: per few years, every few years. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've tried that. Um, I don't wholly recommend it unless you are struggling for output.
1: Yeah. If you just want, if you just want to get words on paper, It
0: probably works really well. It's pretty good. So other than that, Big W is the big uh, screenwriting one. You have – your your plot is shaped like a W. You have falling action, rising action, falling action, rising action. So not to pick on Spider-Man, but in every single time they do these movies, you sort of have the falling action of the beginning where he, like – gets his powers and everything's confusing and uncle Ben dies or whatever. And then you have the rising action of him sort of becoming a superhero. And this is usually where you have a montage in a movie. Um, and then something happens to sort of break out of that. There's some moment of crisis and then this falling action again. And then you have rising action as you lead up to your climactic battle. And in a traditional three act structure, that's you're, your falling action is your first act, and then your rise and fall is your second act, and then your rise is the um, is the final act. In The Matrix, the falling action is basically everything up until Neo wakes up in their ship, in the Nebuchadnezzar, and he then he has this training montage of, like, he jumps over a building, and he learns kung fu and stuff, and that's all the rising action, until the point where he gets to the oracle, and then there's this falling action of betrayal, mentor gets captured, people die, whatever. And then there's rising action is, is basically the rest of the movie after that. Right. It's, you know, we need guns, lots of guns, this whole like fight in the lobby, this rescue mission, things like that until you get to, um, finally beating the villain. And that's sort of the climax of, of the movie. And then there's not that much after that. Right. Um, it's, it's very common because of, uh, runtimes for movies, for, for them to be shaped like that. If you're yeah, doing... especially
1: action movies, because, I mean, generally speaking, what I consider an action movie is one where, cl- like, how, how much of the total movie does the climax take up, or yep. does each climax take up? So, yeah, movies works very well for that.
0: Yeah, romantic comedies, too, actually, because um, you have sort of the falling action of the, you know, life's going bad, and then there's a meet-cute or yeah. whatever, and then you have the rising action of them forming their relationship and going on a couple dates or whatever. And then there's some moment of crisis where like the, the guy finds out that, Oh, she's been married to one guy this whole time. Or the teenage girl finds out that he just was dating her on a bet or whatever. And you get that falling action of after the moment of crisis and then the rising action as you lead towards their reunion or reunification. So very common in movies, you can, you know, you can, add more segments to it of that sort of rise and fall but that's very it's very helpful to sort of break up the ascent toward your climax right is the sort of peak and valley type thing of moments of crisis and stuff like that there's uh, this sort of image that you see a lot of this isosceles triangle mm-hmm. that's sort of it's a slow rise you get to the climax and then it abrupt just, uh, sort of abruptly stops um if you're writing a novel you do not want the whole thing to be a rise towards towards the climax you need those peaks and valleys to sort of break up your your rise and it's more it's more compelling if you mix that rising and falling action between them and i think the last one i want the last story structure i want to talk about real quick is um palindromes is you basically you structure your story as events in the beginning sort of mirror events at the end, right? So you have a boy, he leaves home, he goes to a castle, wanders into the forest, delves deep into a cave, and then he comes back out of the cave, through the forest, through the castle, and returns home. And you you do a, a mirroring. Mm-hmm. So the second time he comes to the castle, it's under very different circumstances, right? And it's, the, it's seen through a different lens. And you don't, you don't necessarily do this with places but you do it with with themes and events right
1: these are metaphors yeah either the again the circumstances have changed uh when he's returning home so to speak or he's changed enough where the second time he faces the challenge he approaches it in a completely different way
0: yeah and so uh dark wizard of Dunkirk is my current national novel writing month um book i did it for 2014 and 2015 and i'll Hopefully, be finishing it November 2016. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to accomplish that, but so it's structured explicitly in the story circle method, but it's also in a palindrome mm-hmm. type of thing because the story starts with two dark wizards and they're about to sacrifice this young baby, and they decide that they can't, and they end up raising him. So if you're doing a palindrome, it, it's just it's very satisfying. Yeah, it's very satisfying for people to see that sort of mirrored. Right? As, so
1: at some point the baby maybe grown up has to choose to sacrifice or not.
0: Yeah, or you know, there there are a bunch of different ways to do it, yeah. That you apply, right? That that you know, maybe he has to make that same choice that they made and he makes it the opposite way. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they sacrifice themselves to him or you know, to help him. Right. right? Or you know, he has a, a baby of his own, and there's sort of like a scene with them as pseudo-grandparents or whatever.
1: Yeah, that rhyming of themes and and settings and, and character choices and things like that is very satisfying on, on some level to a lot of readers and viewers.
0: Yeah, I love it. It's one of my favorite things in, in fiction, is that, mm-hmm. that palindrome structure. And usually you go through the second half a lot faster, because you've right, you know, right. seen those things before, but you're still approaching them at different angles and sort of reinforcing your themes by 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 through that mirror in terms of story structure if you have if you have multiple protagonists mm-hmm. right if you have two or three principal characters you you can have them following the same sort of path or you or they each follow their own structure within that
1: yeah i was gonna say one of the story structures of like back and forth between the past and the present and having those kind of rhyme it's kind of like a palindrome yeah it ties into the palindrome idea of people having like a flashback section uh, chapters and and present day chapters until they 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 meet up and until they do um you'll you'll see themes being explored first in the past and then resolved in the in the present. Stephen King's It Was Like That, it tells the story both in the present day and in the past when all the main characters were kids. It basically had two concurrent stories going on in different time periods, so as events continue in the present, the flashbacks would give context to what was going on. And when the story reaches its climax, and they go into the sewers to fight the monster, uh, we also see their past selves go into the sewers to fight it at the same time.
0: Yeah. Or how many stories will slap on an action prologue, Right, right. Or like something happens, and then you either flashback, or it's.
1: I hate those. Those are
0: like they're like prophecies to me. They are just yeah unnecessary hooks that just spoil things in the story. Well, you can do you can do the a- action prologue. The Matrix has one. Uh, Trinity goes and like. Beats oh! Oh! Yes! 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 And then it's like a big mysterious thing, and then that you know that that's what you're. You're building to an explanation of that. But it's right, not.
1: right, right. That's different from just pulling an action scene from, from the right, story and then starting right. that yeah. Three months earlier. Yeah. Oh, that's that's the worst. <laughs> yeah. Breaking Bad did that in season two, and it
0: disgusted me so much that I stopped watching it for months months, and months. Yeah. There's a show, Quantico, mm-hmm. whose entire premise is that, basically. <laughs> There's like, oh, a bomb explosion, and then it's like, oh, five months earlier, but then every episode has like the, the the sort of present and then the, their time in training at Quantico.
1: Yeah. And, and you already lo- know the bomb's coming and it's going to explode.
0: So yeah, you know, all this stuff is coming and they're trying to like play it as a mystery, but it's like every single episode runs like the present and past or mm-hmm. present and future, whatever in parallel with each other. And it just, <laughs> I would be fine if it, had been like, oh, there's like this bomb explodes and whatever and then let's go through our time at Quantico but it, it plays the entire thing in parallel which drives me nuts.
1: The, yeah, there are a lot of ways you can you can play with story structure to make it interesting beyond the ones that we talked about today but like some of them are just really either really hard or just bad and and I don't know how much that has to do with the, the skill of the writer and how much it has to do with personal preference but yeah. yeah. I mean, I've really enjoyed movies like Memento I don't know if every story or writer could pull off a Memento.
0: No, I, I think Memento is Memento is very unique yeah. in what it does as far as as far as story structure. Yeah, a story track that's going forward in time, in in different segments, and then you have a different story that's going backwards in time with each segment. That's you you can't yeah you can't do that outside of Memento. <laughs> it's um,
1: it's it was it was very unique and well done and. I wouldn't I wouldn't be necessarily against watching some other story try it, but I, I'd have low hopes for them pulling it off.
0: Yeah. But um, we'll probably devote an episode to time travel at some point.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And then we can talk more about chronology sort right, of right. outside time, of
1: that. Time travel would probably be a good follow up for prophecies. And that's where we'll be ending this episode, which once again ran on way too long. Stay tuned next time for episode 12, where we go into how to apply these story structures in rational fiction, and how to adjust them from media that we've consumed to avoid being too predictable. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned after the outro music for Alexander's first Audible book recommendation.
0: Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial with one free book credit to anyone who is interested in helping out the show. The book I'm going to recommend today is The Magicians by Lev Grossman. It is a deconstruction of a lot of young adult fantasy fiction, including Chronicles of Narnia and Harry Potter. It does its own thing, its own original universe, but it very heavily plays on those two series and a few others following the adventures of a bunch of kids who uh go to the magic equivalent of college at uh break bills uh, it was made into a tv series by sci-fi i th- think the book is a whole lot better than that um it's a series of three books the magicians is the first when it came out it was by far my book of the year i think that the two sequels that sort of finish it off into a trilogy very much improve on it as well the characters are really well written Some people have found them to be a little bit irritating, but I I think that they're irritating in the ways that real people are irritating, and that helped for me to make them more compelling. The magic is very very magical in a way that I think sometimes you don't see in fantasy uh, these days, where people cast a fireball or whatever, and that sort of is just a standard thing, or it's, or it's within the genre, and no real attention is called to it. Um, the Magicians takes magic and makes it feel like this sense of wonder and awe is happening, especially uh, the first time it's done. It just sort of touches that part of the brain that I think, as someone who reads a lot of fantasy, I does not get touched very often for me. So I think that's well worth a listen uh, or well worth a read. Um, if you would like to help us out go to www.audibletrial.com slash rational and sign up for a free 30-day trial uh, and check out the magicians by love Grossman